Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. A couple weeks ago, over in Moscow, we went through uh, a a several-week-long series. I think it went for like three months. And it was very simple. It was called Someone Else's Shoes. And the whole idea behind it was that every single week, we walked through the different story and kind of life perspective of a different uh, biblical figure, uh, branching all the way back from way back in in the Old Testament. And then we ended it on Easter, I think just with Jesus himself. And so... Uh, we went with the big figures like Jesus, but we also spoke about some very small, like lesser known biblical figures. Like if you've ever heard of the Old Testament figure, Beniah, I'd never heard of him uh, and I work at a church. So we kind of walked through some of that stuff. But uh, one of the weeks closer towards the end, uh, I got the amazing opportunity to kind of dive in. And the idea was really simple as we walked through this sermon series. It was uh, looking at these people as people uh, who lived life, experienced uh, it the exact same way that we did, and seeing, okay, how has the way that God has spoken into their life, how can it speak into our lives? And so as I was going through, I got the chance to speak on a very familiar character, Corbin mentioned it earlier, by the name of Mary Magdalene. Uh, You may be familiar with that name. You may not be familiar with that name. If you've grown up in the church uh, or have read the Bible at all, you're probably familiar with it. Um, And I learned some really, really interesting things about Mary Magdalene. But before I dive too far into that, I wanted to share a story with you guys. So a couple of weeks ago, it's a couple of months ago now, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, though, my younger sister, her name is Joy, she got married over in Oregon. It was a beautiful wedding. Super, super excited to be there. Uh, But several weeks prior to that, uh, she had her bridal shower. And my wife and I thought, oh, this is going to be a great opportunity Uh, My entire family, uh, pretty much extended, lives in Spokane. And for years and years, I lived way south in Boise. And so now that I lived in Moscow, it's like, oh, we can just go visit them on a day's notice. And this weekend in particular, it was a great opportunity. She had her bridal shower on a Saturday. And we thought, you know what? This would be a great opportunity. Let's knock out two birds with one stone. Uh, And that is because uh, several weeks prior to that, my other sister, her name was Ashley, uh, she and her husband uh, welcomed their very first child into the world. So now we have that photo of, of that beautiful baby that we can throw up. Uh, this is uh, my nephew. Uh, so up here, this is uh, my brother-in-law, Matt. Um, and is this not the cutest baby you've ever seen in your life? Uh, yeah, aw, that's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for someone to say aw. Uh, I would like to introduce you guys to my nephew. This is Theodore Rodney Graham. He is the cutest little baby I've ever seen. He's one of those uh, perfect babies that can uh, fall asleep, even if you're like, vacuuming right next to his crib for some reason. I don't know how my sister and her husband managed to do it, but it's amazing. Um, he is my favorite little baby in the world. Uh, and when they first gave birth, I was a little hesitant uh, because they named him Theodore. And I was hesitant, not because I don't like the name. I think the name, it's a strong name. I think it's beautiful. But uh, because his name is now Teddy Graham. <laughs> oh, <laughs> clicked in some of your guys' heads. And I remember they told me that and I was like, oh, that's Great. <laughs> That's wonderful. So in the years to come, I have a feeling it's either going to lead to a bunch of really awesome inside jokes or one too many noogies on the playground. Only time will tell. We'll see how that, how that plays out. But regardless, uh, we, the bridal shower was on Saturday. We headed up there Friday. We got to spend the whole day uh, with my sister and her husband and our new nephew. And then the next morning, somewhat early-ish, uh, my wife and my sister, they headed off to the bridal shower to go set up. And they were gone for several hours, and that left me and my brother-in-law, Matt, to kind of just hold down the fort. And it was my dream come true, because I just got to spend the whole day with my little nephew. 
And we, I know Matt pretty well. I've known him for a while. And so we had uh, quite a bit to talk about. And I remember uh, I turned to him. Uh, he, he had just put Teddy in one of those little swingy baby things. I don't know the terminology for it. The little swingy baby thingy. And he put his son in there and he was sitting there on the couch and I was sitting on the other side of the living room. And I asked him what I thought was a pretty straightforward question. I was like, Matt, how has, uh, how have you been? Like, cause I asked him, I was like, so much has changed in your life recently. And it's true. A, a ton had changed. And I thought it was kind of a very simple, straightforward question that I thought would be a good icebreaker that would I don't know, spark a couple hours of conversation. But what he told me next, I found to be absolutely fascinating. Over the course of the next 10 minutes, uh, he started explaining and I realized just how drastically Matthew's life had changed, even in the amount of time that I'd known him. Uh, when I first met Matt, he was just the guy that my sister was dating. And he was, and he was really nice and I loved him. But now before me, as I sat there and I asked this question, he wasn't just the guy that my sister was dating. He was a new father. He was a recent homeowner. Uh, he was a capable husband and a man with uh, what, uh, from my perception, an insurmountably large amount of responsibility in front of him. Uh, he began to explain to me all of these things that to me sounded like massive stressors in his life. And as he talked, it became more and more clear that this was the case from my perspective. Uh, from the, the financial cleanup of buying a house and having your first kid in the same year to uh, trying desperately to stay as healthy as he can for his family because he was worried about like, past, past family uh, health issues to uh, trying to stay financially responsible. And from my perspective, sitting on the opposite couch, I was just sitting there like, oh my gosh, your life sounds so stressful. <laughs> And I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it if that was my life. And I, as he was explaining it, from my perspective, it sounded like stress after stress and responsibility after responsibility. And it's kind of scared me a little bit thinking like, wow, I don't know if I could handle his life. But what stood out to me was that the entire time that he was talking, I realized uh, that he wasn't looking at me. He never once, no matter how big the responsibility he was describing, no matter how large the stressor he was uh, putting forth in front of me, I realized that he never once broke eye contact with his son, Teddy. And the whole time he had this like stupidly large smile on his face. And we just hung out for the rest of the day. And eventually my, my wife and my sister came back and we we said goodbye and we gave our hugs and I, I kissed Teddy on the big soft spot in his forehead and I... I gave him back to my sister and my wife and I got in the car and we headed back down south uh, home for the two hour drive. And the whole time in the car, I was sitting there and I, I realized that I didn't quite understand what my brother-in-law was going through. And it confused me because he was living in this, this like constant state of bewilderment of not knowing what he didn't know, if that makes sense. He had so much in front of him, yet at the same time, he had like this, this pure, unabashed happiness that was just like filling up inside of his chest. And I remember sitting in the car and going, I don't get it. I'm so confused. He was describing what sounded like difficulties, but he was smiling. And I chalked it up to the fact of, well, I don't have any kids. Uh, my, my wife and I don't have any kids. And I thought, you know, that's probably it. The closest thing I have to kids is all the middle schoolers I hang out with every week and we have a really needy cat and that's about it. And I thought, I, I'll just chalk it up to that. I don't have kids. It's probably something I'm not meant to understand. Yet as uh, weeks back as I, I got the chance to dive into the story of Mary Magdalene and I got to dig up more about who she was as a person and what we can learn from her, things slowly started to come together and I started to understand. 
And I wanna, I wanna share it with you guys, but first we have to dive in and ask the question of who, who is Mary Magdalene? Who, who is this woman, right? Uh, and there's a couple different things that we need to address before we dive into her story completely. So who was Mary Magdalene? Uh, the answer to that question is probably harder to answer than you might think. Uh, in actuality, especially if you grew up in the church, you might think like, oh, I know who Mary Magdalene was. She uh, was this, this sinner of a woman uh, that Jesus picked up out of her brokenness and she shows up a whole bunch of times throughout the influential bits of Jesus's ministry. That's kind of true. It's, it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And in fact, as, as time has gone on, I think we forget sometimes that we as the church here on a Sunday morning, uh, we are the same church that was formed in the book of Acts and started over almost 2,000 years ago. But 2,000 years can add a lot of tradition and a lot of uh, unknown, unknown like grime on top of someone's story. And so there's a couple of myths that are very prevalent around who Mary Magdalene was, a couple of myths that I want to address and kind of uh, say, say and, and move on from so that we can realize who this woman actually was. The very first one is one that I, uh, I hear a lot um, from uh, both young and old, this transcends generations. Uh, there's a really long-standing myth that Jesus or uh, Mary Magdalene was like the secret wife of Jesus. That like it's like this long-standing secret, like church secret, that Mary Magdalene was like the hush-hush wife of Jesus. Um, this one always makes me laugh a little bit because if you, if first of all, if you dive into scripture, there's no scriptural basis for this at all. Uh, where where this one tends to come from is uh, a lot of conspiracy theories and a lot of speculation throughout the centuries. Um, but the most prevalent source of where this comes from, at least in our modern day, is the best-selling book and movie, The Da Vinci Code. So you can probably take that one, that the idea that Mary was like this secret, um, unknown uh, wife of Jesus. You can take that and just kind of throw it away. We don't need it for it right now, okay? Uh, but the second one, the, the second largest myth that's normally known about Mary Magdalene that I actually thought for a long time, and it wasn't until I started diving in that I went, oh, that doesn't have any basis in it. Uh, and it's, really, it's this really, really popular myth that for some reason we all think that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. There's this law, and sometimes we hear that and we think it's synonymous with prostitute. Um, a lot of times if you look up, like, what does Magdalene mean? It means like harlot. None of that's actually true. Um, it's several dozen centuries of tradition kind of piled on top of each other. And some of it comes from the Catholic Church and some of it comes from misteachings. But we have this unspoken thought process about Mary Magdalene, that she was some kind of broken harlot and seductress that Jesus scooped up out of the squalor of her sin and showed her a new path. And while that is a beautiful story, uh, not much of it is actually based in history and in historical context. So as we kind of walk through, like, who was Mary Magdalene? She's not this secret Jesus or secret wife of Jesus. She's not this uh, hidden prostitute. Rather, um, it's kind of just the opposite. And there's one simple fact that points to that, and it's really, really simple. It's her name. Uh, maybe you guys, like me, for the longest time, thought that uh, her name was first name Mary, last name Magdalene. That's actually not true. Uh, in reality, uh, that's what we've, it's slowly turned into over time, because in actuality, her name, or, well, really more likely her title, would have been Mary of Magdala. It's Mary and where she's from. It's like, I would be Logan of Moscow or Corbin of Pullman, right? And over time, that might get slowly changed. But in reality, it was a title 
because Mary comes from this little tiny town in Galilee called Magdala. So I have a, a, a picture for you guys. This is an overview shot of the Sea of Galilee. So as you're reading through, especially the Gospels, you'll notice this, this area come up a lot. In fact, uh, up near the top of the Sea of Galilee, uh, near Capernaum and Bethsaida, you'll see something that it's labeled as the Jesus Triangle. This is a, a massive chunk of Jesus's ministry happens inside the Jesus Triangle. If you pick up uh, one of the four books of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, mo- good chance you'll probably find a story that happens somewhere in this area. But if you notice, this area isn't that huge in comparison to what we may think. And way over to the left here, uh, to the left of the Sea of Galilee, next to Gennesaret, uh, just south of Israel, north of Tiberias, is the town of Magdala. This is the town that Mary was from. She, she was from here. She grew up here. Um, and being from Magdala, Mary most likely was, in fact, not a prostitute, but rather she was probably a woman of wealth, and probably a woman of means. She probably had some financial status behind her. Uh, the reason we th- I, I'm going to say this is because a ton of archaeological digs and a ton of studies into uh, what Magdala was like back in Jesus's day and back in Mary Magdala's day uh, makes us kind of point to this understanding that it wasn't just a random town, but rather it was this, uh, this hub of uh, commerce and wealth. This town had money, and I mean a ton of money. Uh, and there's a very particular reason for this. Uh, some towns are most well-known for particular things. Like if you ever go to Chicago, you got to get the deep dish pizza. Uh, certain towns are just known for certain things. And back then, Magdala was known uh, for how they used salt, particularly, uh, particularly on how to preserve things. Um, there was a, it was a fishing town. Most of these areas are fishing towns. And the inhabitants of Magdala had seemingly mastered the art of using salt to preserve fish and meats for a very long time. And you might think to yourself, oh, salty fish. I've had that. My mom made that growing up. It's terrible. Uh, Why is that special? (laughs) But you have to remember, this is a world before refrigeration. Today, you can just go to the grocery store. You can buy some fish, buy some meat, chuck it in the fridge and forget about it until you need it. You couldn't do that back then. So to have a reliable, useful, um, constant way of preserving meat for a long time would have been worth its weight in gold. And Magdala had seemingly mastered this technique. There's a ton of historical uh, documentation that backs all this stuff up. You got to dig into it sometime. It's really fascinating, just the town of Magdala. But it's uh, not just this. To kind of put the icing on the money-making cake that was the town of Magdala, not only did they have this very specific resource and skill, they were also perfectly uh, situated geographically in order to use it. So I have another map for you guys. Uh, This one is, this is an actual physical paper map. This is a picture of a physical paper map. And as you can see, this is the same image before, but much farther zoomed out. So the Sea of Galilee is now much uh, farther to the north on this map. Uh, real, real tiny little uh, blue dot right there. And as you can see, this big pink uh, line on the side, this is something that is historically known as the Intercoastal Highway. Uh, every year, 365 days, for centuries, hundreds of thousands of people would have gone up and down and traveled this intercoastal highway. It's how they would have gotten from uh, way up north to way down south. This is the easiest route to take. And as you can notice, there's a lot of different forks in the road because as people kind of find ruts in mountainsides and the easiest ways to go, uh, kind of right in the middle of this big uh, this big path is like three big forking areas. And then just north of it is one big, another big fork right above it. And if you notice the, the three forking area and the two one, 
they intersect right in this one particular little spot. And right there is where Magdala was. So not only did Magdala have uh, a a resource and a tool that seemingly no one else had, at least as, as well as they did back in this day, but they were perfectly situated to use it incredibly well. And so because of that, this town was full of money. Because if you're a traveler and you're going from the far south to the far north and you're traveling the, the intercoastal highway, what better place to spend your hard-earned coinage than the beautiful sunny town of Magdala? Pick up some salty fish, just like mom used to make it, right? So they're traveling through there and they would have done a ton of stuff. This is where Mary's from, a town of wealth, a town of influence and affluence. And most likely because of this, Mary would have been a woman perhaps of more wealth than normal. Uh, and you might think, well, well Logan, she could, she could be from Magdala and not be wealthy. And be like, yeah, you're right. Uh, but there's actually some other things that make me think this as well. And we find them in scripture. Uh, in fact, the very first time that we see Mary pop up in scripture chronologically is in Luke 8. Uh, and we learn a ton about our friend Mary when she pops up. So I'm gonna read uh, Luke 8, starting in chapter one. It's the very first introduction of Mary Magdalene. It says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chaza, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that seems to draw a very clear picture. This, this is the very first introduction that we see of Mary in scripture. And it specifically mentions that she and several other women were helping to support his ministry, it seems like out of their own pockets, uh, I hate to break it to you guys, but Jesus didn't have this like massive trust fund that he just pulled money out of to travel. Like people supported him. And it seems like Mary Magdalene was one of these people. Where she's from, all the, it all seems to add up. So now we've established uh, who Mary Magdalene is historically, but now I have a much more important question to ask. Who was Mary Magdalene as a person? And this is very important because as we, as we walk through different biblical characters, we tend to view them exactly as that, characters. Like they are fictional people that have been written and created for whatever story they're in. When in reality, Mary was a person. She had a life. She didn't just start existing when she entered stage left for her scene and like walking on like, oh, time for me to talk to Jesus. Like she didn't just start existing. She was a person. She had an entire life before the accounts of Luke 8. And if Jesus hadn't come into her life, she would have continued to live that life. Everything that you've experienced, she experienced. She would have had fear and joy, happiness and sorrow. She would have had dreams. She would have had failures. She was a full-fledged person. And so it's not just enough to ask, okay, well, what's the historical context around it? What was Mary like? What was this woman like? And uh, I know that you're probably thinking, well, well, she was a woman of wealth. She probably did pretty well. But being wealthy does not make for an easy life. Uh, a quick, quick little aside that I, always, I like to do. Um, by a show of hands, how many of you guys arrived here today in a car? Quick show of hands. Pretty much everyone, right? Statistically, uh, that puts you in the top 1% to 2% uh, financially of the entire world population, simply because you have easy access to a car. 
doesn't feel like we're very wealthy, but we have unlimited resource at our fingertips. And does that mean that your life is without problem and without woe and without hardship? Far from it. Mary is the exact same thing. She would have had struggles and problems all her own. The very first one is staring us right in the face. It's the fact that she was a woman in a time that was not built or designed for women's success, comfort, or ease. Mary would have been viewed as a second-class citizen just because she wasn't a man. Uh, A really easy way to illustrate this is uh, back in the day that Mary lived, she wouldn't be able to be considered a reliable witness in a trial simply because she's a woman. Anything that she said in a trial as a witness could be dismissed because, well, of course, why would they trust trust her, her opinion, right? Nothing about the world that she's in or the culture that she's in is there to set Mary up for success. That's the very first hurdle that she has to tackle. And the second one is a little bit more specific and it's it's given to us in her introduction in Luke 8. Uh, We see in Luke 8 that she was inflicted with seven different demons. Count, that's seven different demons. And I'm a skeptic by nature. And so when I saw that originally, I was like, oh, it's probably like, you know, metaphorical demons of depression and mental health. But if you dive into the Greek and you look at what, what does this really mean? No, no, no. It is seven literal demons. Mary would have been living day by day with spiritual forces, like breaking her psyche, burrowing into her soul. She would have had to carry that every single day. Her life would have been all over the place. And then in the midst of her frustration and in the midst of her struggle, Jesus shows up. And if his invitation to follow, if his invitation to her to follow him was anything like the one that he presented to the other disciples, his presence in her life would have been like a cool drink of water in the very dry desert that was her life. Everything about Mary's existence would have changed. Her afflictions lifted, her demons removed. She would have been given purpose outside of just uh, whatever was in her checking account. Mary would have had an entirely new lease on life. And as much as uh, maybe media and, and uh, biblical uh, movies and television shows maybe make us want to think, Mary doesn't actually show up a ton throughout the ministry of Jesus outside of when she's first introduced and kind of towards the end of Jesus's life. But we can say confidently with historical context looking into it, it makes no sense for Mary to be introduced in Luke 8 at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And the next time that we see her is much, much later in Jesus's ministry we can kind of deduce Mary was most likely there for every single bit of Jesus's ministry. Just because she's not mentioned by name doesn't mean that she wasn't there. She wouldn't, probably didn't just show up and be like, here's some money, Jesus, and then ditched and then showed up at the very end for no reason. She was there bit by bit by bit. And because of that introdu- introduction, the beginning of Luke 8, Uh, we can kind of see how this lines up. Uh, Mary would have seen a ton of amazing things that Jesus did. So just a couple of things that Mary most likely would have seen uh, as she was following this Messiah that showed her new life. She would have seen uh, not just her own demons lifted and removed from her. She would have seen Jesus do this for tons of other people, the removal of demons and afflictions from their life. She would have seen Jesus feed thousands of people, more people than she's ever seen gathered in one place with next to nothing in his hand. She would have heard countless messages, untold parables. She would have seen Jesus dining with sinners and treating them like equals in a world where that was just not done. 
She would have seen him uh, debate and go on into full on like verbal combat with the hypocritical religious leaders of Jesus's day. She would have seen him healing lepers, uh, giving sight to the blind. She would have seen him raise people from the dead. Mary would have been there for every single aspect of Jesus's ministry. And day by day, that awe that she had for the son of God that met her in her brokenness would have gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. But nothing uh, that's good typically lasts forever. And the next time that we see Mary pop up by name in scripture uh, is not as pretty a picture as maybe some of the things she got the chance to witness. At least three of the four gospel accounts mention uh, that Mary was at the crucifixion. Three out of the four mention her by name. And the one that doesn't mention her by name mentions the group of women that Mary would have been a part of. Uh, we can, I, I believe pretty confidently, Mary was there when Jesus died. And we see here uh, recorded in Matthew, in the Matthew account in chapter 27, this is just one of the descriptions of Christ's death. It says, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Mary's been there since the very beginning. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And the savior that had spoken life into her was now hanging on a cross in front of her, dying. And I can only imagine, because she's a person, she doesn't just stop existing when she's not mentioned, I can't help but imagine, what did the next couple days look like for Mary Magdalene? What does the Saturday after the crucifixion look like for Mary? She would have been walking around in this fog of confusion and despair and mourning. Uh, but at the same time, she would have been filled with, filled with this awe of what she'd seen Jesus do and know that he could, could do again. And as we keep walking through several, several of the gospel accounts, uh, they record Mary doing exactly what you do when you're mourning someone that you love. You go to their resting place and you just try to make sense of what's happened. And so we see in Matthew 28, we read, uh, after the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled the stone back and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And this is my favorite part. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples. And as I read this, and I read this a lot, I kept pouring over it. Because when I read it the first time, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And I read it again, and I was like, nope, still doesn't make sense. Because as I was going through this, I found something that just seemed so contradictory. It didn't make any sense. How could Mary be afraid yet filled with joy? I don't know about you, but uh, fear and joy seem like they're on opposite ends of the emotional spectrum. I don't understand uh, how she was doing it. I thought I was missing something. 
And in fact, when you, when you dive into the Greek, because I was like, maybe these words don't mean what I think they mean. And so I dove into the Greek and I was like, no, they mean exactly what I think. In Greek, uh, the word for fear, it specifically, it's a fear due to being inadequate because of not having the proper resources for the situation you're in. And the word that's used for joy specifically is a happiness due to the awareness of God's grace and favor in your life. Both of these at the same time. And it's not the first time that this weird combination of emotions shows up in this account alone. It, uh, when this is accounted in the Gospel of Mark, we see very similar language. Uh, in Mark 16, it says, trembling and bewildered, the women fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It's the same thing. The words trembling and bewildered carry the exact same idea of being afraid yet filled with joy. Mary is in this weird tension where she is massively overwhelmed by everything she doesn't know about this situation, about the unknowability of what God is capable of doing. And in that comes a little bit of fear. When you don't fully understand something, it's natural to kind of be like, oh my gosh, I don't know. But at the same time, she felt this overwhelming joy of what Jesus had done. And as I was going through this, it was so confusing to me. And I thought, how do I reconcile this? How does this make any sense? And as the more I went over it and the more I poured over it, the more it slowly started to click. I realized this emotion of afraid yet filled with joy, the wonder that kind of exists in that middle area, I realized, oh my gosh, I've seen this before. And it wasn't in a Bible story and it wasn't in a biblical account. It was in the eyes of my brother-in-law as he looked into the eyes of his newborn son. He had seen the exact same thing where I was once left wondering how Matt could possibly have this stupid grin on his face, smiling while he was explaining all of these terrifying things to me. I realized it's the exact same thing that we see in Mary's life in light of her experience with Jesus. So as we walk through the shoes, walk in the shoes of Mary Magdalene and experience her perspective and what we can learn from her, we have to stop and acknowledge the wonder that she felt in God's presence. Just like I saw in my conversation with my brother-in-law, uh, Mary was living in this tension of being absolutely overwhelmed by the situation that she's in and what she doesn't understand, but being so happy and overwhelmingly joyous because of it. She's living in that tension. And just like my brother-in-law was explaining all of these impossible stressors while smiling at his son, I, I like to imagine Mary leaving the tomb that day with this massive smile on her face because she's seen something beautiful. And I think the word uh, that I used before, wonder, I think that's a great way to put it. I think that's the best possible way that we can put it. Uh, the definition for wonder is a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, and inexplicable. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better word to describe what Mary is experiencing here. There's a lot of things that Mary is defined as. She was a woman breaking free from this societal mold and joining a movement of biblical proportions. She was this incorrectly categorized individual who was known mostly for something she didn't actually even do. She was uh, a sinner who was healed. And due to that, she threw her diligence and her loyalty in with someone who healed her. She's all of those things and more. 
But the beauty of Mary Magdalene, I find, does not lie in any of these traits. Rather, they lie in her unabashed wonder and astonishment of who God is, who he was, and who he's going to continue to be. Mary left the tomb afraid, yet filled with joy, because she had a wonder inside of her that can only truly be inspired by the God of the universe made flesh. And that is amazing. That is beautiful. This absolute wonder that she is experiencing by a God that she can't fully understand yet she still has a personal relationship with. I don't see how you can read that and chalk it up any other way. And that's really cool. But the only issue that I see with that is that Mary's a person just like us. So where's that in our lives? Where did the wonder go? Because I don't know about you, but uh, when I first found out who Jesus was, I was overwhelmed by who he was and what he could do in my life. And I, as I went through Mary's story, I realized, oh, I'm not as full of wonder as I used to be. I, I can't speak for you, but as I went through this, I was deeply and wholly convicted by everything that I saw in Mary's stories because I realized that I was seeing this wonder in Mary's life because it was something that I no longer had in my own. The truth is, and I think, I, I think this is probably true for you guys, when we look at Jesus's presence in our lives and our faith, it's not really something that's deeply impactful on a day-to-day basis. Rather, it is uh, a box that we check off on a list of religions as we're filling out a form. When I think of uh, my life honestly, and I think of the impact that Jesus has in my day-to-day life, oftentimes he's an afterthought in a day that I've already planned and am not planning on changing. We walk around every single day breathing breath that we didn't pay for in lungs that we have on rent from the creator of the universe. And we have the boldness, the audacity to not be in constant wonder of who he is. If you guys walked in here today and you've forgotten who God is, I want to take a moment to remind you. He is the one who brought creation into form with nothing but his words. And yet he is the one who cares for that creation no matter how small it is in comparison to him. He's the one who keeps the stars and their place and the planets where they are and they obey him. And yet he still loves you enough to come down and tell you personally how much you mean in his life. He's the one who shapes the world and keeps it functioning. And yet in his busyness, he brought himself down into human form and showed, his, showed, himself, showed to us how much he loves us by sacrificing himself on a cross. When we look at Jesus and his presence in our lives, we should be afraid yet filled with joy, trembling and bewildered. We should be full of wonder. If you walked in here today expecting a fun church message uh, before you go and eat your Memorial Day brunch and go to a barbecue tomorrow, but you realize it's been a long time since you've stood in the wonder of who God is, it's time to pay attention if you feel like you've maybe lost that wonder of who God is in your life, I have a couple of words of encouragement for you to, you to take with as you leave today. Um, and both of them come directly from what we see in the life of Mary Magdalene. Uh, the first one is very simple. When Mary discovered who Jesus was and the impact that he had on not just her, but everyone and the entirety of the world, everything in her life suddenly became focused on acting and living through the lens of Christ. Every thought she made, every action she took, every breath she breathed was done into her experience with Jesus and overflowed out of that experience. 
And that means we need to start asking ourselves, are we doing the same thing? Are we looking and acting out of the overflow of who God is in our life? When that person cuts you off in traffic, when the coffee shop gets your order wrong again, when uh, that person that you have a broken relationship with is still broken and in shattered pieces in the floor in front of you because you stubbornly refuse to pick it up. When trial and storms come your way, are you living out of the overflow of God's presence in your life? I'm not saying, these things do matter. I'm not saying they don't, but they become a lot easier to overcome and to deal with when you focus on the wonder of who Jesus is in your life. And the second one is a little bit simpler, uh, but also infinitely more complex. And it's very simple. Uh, it's to live in, live in the tension. It said that Mary left afraid yet filled with joy. It, didn't, it, it wasn't like, it, they happened at the same time. It wasn't Mary left afraid and then was fearful for a while. And then when she finished feeling fearful, then she felt joy. They happened at the same time. And that's confusing and it's wonderful. Mary got really, really good at living in the tension. And that means that when the storms come and the hardships come and they will come and the waves will crash on you and life will get difficult, It means that when that happens, it doesn't mean that the joy that we have in who God is gets thrown out the window, but rather it means it becomes the rudder of the ship that we use to steer us through those hard times. Get really good at living in the tension. And if you focus on it, it'll help you overcome any situation, big, small, doesn't matter. So if you feel like you've lost some of that wonder of Christ in your life, uh, a great place to start is the book of Psalms. I've always said that there is a Psalm for every single emotion you could possibly feel. Uh, Anger, joy, sadness, uh, elation, any emotion that you can think of, there's a Psalm for it. And I wanted to share one with you guys as we leave today, and it's it's Psalm 65. Says, you answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our savior. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who steeled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. If you guys feel like you've lost some of that wonder, I, I encourage you to take that with you as you leave today. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.